The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. Today we're going to look at verses 32 to 43, which actually closes out the chapter of 9. Chapter 9, long chapter, 43 verses. Uh, Just by way of summary to give us and remind us of some context, Acts chapter 1 began with Jesus risen from the dead. He appeared to his disciples. He gave them a commission, great commission, part of which is in Acts chapter 1-8 where he said, wait, be patient until you receive power from the Holy Spirit, which would happen shortly thereafter. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then from that point on, you'll be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses. So Jesus was talking to his disciples when he said that, but specifically to his 12 apostles. They would be the main witnesses on behalf of Jesus Christ in the early church as they laid the foundation of the church. They were instrumental. They had a unique, distinct responsibility, job, giftedness that could not be imitated, replicated by anyone that came after the 12 apostles. So first and foremost, when we read that verse, when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, he's speaking first and foremost to the 12 apostles. You'll be my witnesses for them in a very unique way. Secondarily, this is true of every Christian. We're called to be a witness for Jesus Christ. But uh, when the Spirit of God came upon the 12 apostles, they were to be his witnesses starting there in Jerusalem. They did that very faithfully. They They literally filled the entire city of Jerusalem with the gospel of Jesus Christ every quarter. And Jesus said, after you go to Jerusalem, then you go into all of Judea, the surrounding region. And they did. took months. And then from there, go to Samaria. And so the gospel went to Samaria. God used persecution and saints fleeing from Jerusalem to partially to send it to Samaria. Samaria was just north of Jerusalem and Judea. And then go beyond Samaria, go beyond the borders of Palestine and Israel and the Promised Land. Don't just be a cul-de-sac to the Jews in terms of giving truth about me. I want you to take me to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. Even to the remotest parts of the earth, Jesus said. And so that's kind of a, what Luke is trying to show us, how the gospel began in the city of Jerusalem. And in obedience to Jesus Christ, the apostles began to fulfill this great mission or commission of taking the gospel from Jerusalem and then all throughout Palestine and then even beyond Israel to the remotest parts of the earth. And so that's actually where we are at now in Acts chapter 9, is we're going to see uh, the gospel Uh, Chapter 9 is critical in that Luke shows us how the gospel now begins to go directly to Gentile nations and Gentile cities and Gentile people beyond the borders of uh, Jewish cities and locations. So chapter 9 is transitional. It is critical. Last week we looked at the Apostle Paul. He was in chapter 9. Actually, we were introduced to Paul, who was called Saul. He's an unbeliever at the end of chapter 7. Then we looked at Saul, the church persecutor, in chapter 8. Then we continued to see his persecution work in the beginning of chapter 9. And then we saw how Jesus saved Saul in a dramatic transformation and salvation and then turned him into the Apostle Paul. That was in chapter 9, and that's where we were last week. And so that's where we'll pick up. So we had about three chapters introducing the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And when Jesus saved Paul... Jesus told him right there on the spot, you will be my vessel to the Gentiles. Because up to this point, the gospel had been going primarily to the Jews. 
spearheaded by Peter, John, and the other apostles. God was going to use Paul in a unique way to take it beyond the ends of the earth. But before that happens, Luke transitions back now to the ministry of Peter. So that's the second part of Acts chapter 9 now. We're transitioning back to Peter and his ministry for chapter 9, chapter 10, chapter 11, and chapter 12. And then after that, Paul will take over the rest of the book. And the reason this is important is uh, God is going to show us, or Luke, as he's moved by the Holy Spirit, that before Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles of the world, that ministry needs to be embraced and validated by the founding apostles in Jerusalem. Peter, John, and those apostles, they need to affirm the ministry of Paul. Paul can't just have an independent ministry, some rogue, lone ranger Christian doing his own thing. Oh, you guys do the Jews, we'll do the Gentiles. Without working together and being unified by God, because that would have created a huge, massive division in the church. God wants the church to be unified, whether Jew or Gentile. And so God's actually going to show us the first Gentiles were actually introduced into the church, welcomed into the church, affirmed by the church, not by Paul, but by Peter. This is significant. And so this is where we begin to show how important Peter's ministry is in reaching out to the Gentiles, welcoming them into the body of Christ. Because Peter was a Jew. He was a full-fledged Jew, born and raised uh, in Galilee as a Jew, trained in the synagogue, trained in the Old Testament scriptures, uh, fastidious to holding to the Mosaic laws. And there were many of them. And uh, having a, and he had a certain attitude towards non-Jews, Gentiles. Not because God commanded that, but because he was a sinful man. He, frankly, <laughs> Peter at times could be prejudiced towards non-Jews. And Jesus had to train him for three years to get that out of his system. And also, even after Jesus left and uh, ascended back into heaven, Peter struggled with that at times. And we're going to see that. And God has to deal with Peter. Peter, you need to not be prejudiced towards anybody. You need to love all people. The gospel is for everyone, not just Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So this story is critical to it, and it leads into chapter 10. We're going to see that. Uh, If you look at your notes there that I put, the title of the sermon today. Just two main points that I want to summarize because it's really uh, evolving around two miracles that Peter performs. And the title I put there for chapter 9, verse 32 to 43 is Apostolic Miracles. Because we're going to see two amazing miracles here. Apostolic Miracles. Miracles done by the apostles. The apostles were unique. So one of the main themes that I want to highlight here is the unique and distinct ministry of the Apostle Peter and the unique ministry of apostles in general. Christians are frequently confused about apostles, what they are, who they are, what they did, how they relate to us today. There is much confusion, and it spans the spectrum from one extreme to the other. An example of Christians confused about the ministry of the apostles and who they are. My Greek professor when I was in college, when I went to a different school, a Christian school in Santa Barbara, California, had a Greek professor, been around forever, still alive, and an influential evangelical Christian. And recently wrote a book that's come out, and it's called Peter, False Disciple and Apostate. The title says it all. Couldn't believe it. This came out two years ago. My former Greek professor. 
influential in the evangelical scholarly world. Peter, false disciple, and apostate. That's the title of the book. You don't need to read the book because that's what he means. I'm like, no, you can't, you can't be serious. Former professor, are you telling me that you think that Peter was a false disciple and apostate, not even a Christian? And I read the book, and that's exactly what he argues. So now when I read Peter in the book of Acts, I read it in a new way all the time. As I watch Peter, I listen to Peter, I see his... Is he a false disciple? Is he deceived and blinded and misled? As we're told to believe... You know what was sad about that book? Number one, it was my former Bible teacher and Greek professor. But what's even more sad is all the evangelical, uh, influential evangelicals on the back of the book endorsing the book. Couldn't believe it. So that's one extreme. Where you got someone like Peter who's a false disciple, and then you've got other Christians who say that uh, apostles are normative and you should have apostles today. And uh, I was talking to one Christian, this was a while ago, and he's telling me about his church and asking me if we have an apostle in our church. I said, well, uh, what, do you, what do you mean? Well, every church needs an apostle. That's the biblical mandate. That's in the book of Acts. That's all over the Bible. You're not a real church unless you have an apostle in your church. And so that's the unique and distinct thing about our church and our local church and why we're walking with the Spirit. I'm not exaggerating. This is how he was talking. Because we have actual apostles. You need at least one apostle. We have a living apostle in our church. And I said, wow. Okay, well, I guess we do have an apostle in our church. Um, There's Peter. He's at our church. And John and all the apostles that wrote the New Testament, and they're alive. They're in heaven, but they're not here on earth. So I guess, yeah, okay, yeah, we have apostles at our church. That was what I said in the end. But where we disagreed is he believes that apostles live on, and that office continues. And that's actually common in a lot of pockets of Christianity. So it's not uncommon to talk to a Christian who believes that or go to the Christian bookstore frequent the, the books, and on the back you got Apostle so-and-so and Apostle so-and-so, these people who think they're apostles today and they're uh, alive and heading up churches. and It's actually very much misrepresenting what the Bible says. So many people get confused. They read the Bible and they think some things are normative, like having apostles is normative. That should be true of every church and every Christian throughout all of history, and I would say absolutely not. And the book of Acts is clear on that. They show that the apostles were unique, they were distinct, uh, they were for a limited period of time. They were transitional. Uh, God used them in a unique way to give direct revelation, which doesn't happen today. The only direct revelation we have is written down in our Bible. And the biggest kicker that we already talked about in Acts chapter 2, in order to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, you needed to be specifically qualified. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2. Peter gave the qualifications. Okay, Judas is dead. According to the Old Testament, we, re- we must replace Judas. And here are the qualifications. He must, whoever the apostle is to be qualified, one of the conditions is he needed to be an eyewitness of the ministry of Jesus Christ from the time of John the Baptist, basically to Jesus' death and the resurrection. That is a qualification of an apostle. There's nobody on earth today that meets that qualification. There are no apostles today. They were foundational. They were the foundation of the church that's clear in the Bible. So just wanted to address that once again to make sure that we are clearly thinking. Another unique thing about the apostles was, and they had three other unique qualifications, by the way. They had to be handpicked by Jesus himself to be an apostle with the testimony of two or three witnesses. That doesn't happen today. 
and they laid the foundation of the church. They received direct revelation, so many others. Um, but look at, this is on the cover of the bulletin, but I just want to read this because it's highly important as we go through these two miracles. Because people read the book of Acts, some folks from certain denominations, and they see a miracle here and a miracle there, and they think, oh, these miracles happen all the time. They're so routine, they're commonplace, they happen all the time. This is normative for the Christian life. We should be seeing these kind of amazing miracles all the time. Uh, people getting bit by serpents and not dying. Uh, people raising from the dead, healing the blind instantaneously, going out touching and healing lepers. That's not, this should be normal for Christians. And I'm thinking, no, it shouldn't. It isn't. It hasn't been through history. I've actually never done a miracle as seen and described in the book of Acts. And I, that doesn't bother me. When I was in India, I, I touched a bunch of lepers, prayed for them. None of them got healed. But here's another qualification of an apostle that made them unique. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 says this. The signs of an apostle. Now, samion is the Greek word, and it means like uh, an, an earmark, a qualification of an apostle. The distinctives of a true apostle. See, he says, Paul says, a true apostle because there are false apostles. There always have been. Jesus warned us there would be. So the signs, the marks, the qualifications of a true apostle were performed among you, Corinthians. They saw Peter do miracles and possibly other apostles. They saw Paul do ministry. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs... That's, that's a supernatural ability to do a miracle. Signs and wonders and miracles or mighty deeds. So there are three kinds of supernatural miracles that the apostles could do that others could not. And they were called qualifications or signs of an apostle. So keep that in mind. The apostles are uniquely qualified to do miracles. So we're going to see two miracles done by Peter keeping in mind that he's an apostle. He was gifted and enabled by God to do this in a way that most folks re- couldn't. As a matter of fact, people call Peter to town to come do a miracle because they, they can't do it. They tried, they prayed, it didn't happen. Maybe Peter the apostle can do a miracle because we've heard he's done miracles before and we know he was with Jesus and Jesus did miracles. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is talking to the 12 apostles. He just chose the 12 apostles and he told them, here's what I want you to do. And the order is highly important. It is absolutely significant. Here's what I want you 12 apostles to do. I want you to go, that's commandment number one, then preach, proclaim, Russo, proclaim good news, a verbal proclamation ministry. That was their primary ministry. It wasn't going around healing. That was not their primary ministry. It wasn't having a food bank. They weren't first and foremost social workers. Their primary ministry was preaching. That is true of all the apostles, including Paul. That's why Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says specifically, God has called, God has appointed me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And then he said the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 1. That is what he did. I came primarily to preach and teach And Jesus said in Matthew 10, I want you to go. I want you to proclaim the kingdom of God. And as you go, there's an ancillary ministry, a complementary ministry, a secondary ministry with 
the proclaiming of the gospel that you do, that is first and foremost, like Jesus. First and foremost, he was to be a preacher of the good news. He was a preacher. He was a rabbi. He was a teacher primarily. And to complement your preaching ministry, to validate your preaching ministry, to let people know that you are truly of God, as you go, as you preach, then you will heal the sick. This is to the apostles, the 12 apostles, not to every Christian. God never said that to every Christian. But to the apostles, you will go and you will heal the sick. This is in Matthew 10. As you preach, heal the sick. And then he said, raise the dead. To the apostles, raise the dead. And cleanse the lepers. Freely you have been given. Or freely you have received, you need to freely give. So they had a unique ministry. Jesus made that very clear from the beginning. So the apostles had, and by the way, there is a, Paul says in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, there are unique spiritual gifts that God gives to certain Christians. The apostles had almost all of the spiritual gifts. Normal Christians, non-apostles, we have some of the gifts. And so... The gift of healing was a supernatural, rare miracle given only to a select few. That's Romans chapter 12. It was a select miracle. Not everybody, as a matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 at the end of the chapter, not everybody has the same gift. Not everybody has the gift of healing. He says that explicitly. This is not normative. This is rare. So we need to point that out. Very rare. And and Peter had... The spiritual gift of healing. He had a mandate from Jesus Christ to do it. He had the power of the Holy Spirit to make it happen. And at the same time, even though Peter had the gift of healing, as did the Apostle Paul, they couldn't invoke it and use it all the time. They couldn't do it any time they wanted to. It wasn't at their discretion. There were times where Paul wished he could have done a miracle and it it couldn't happen for whatever reason. Or Timothy got sick and he wanted Timothy. Timothy was his dear friend. He couldn't heal Timothy in the name of Jesus. He couldn't do it. And Epaphroditus and others, dear friends of of his. So they couldn't do miracles at their will and discretion at any time. It had to be in keeping with the will of God, depending upon that situation in history. So that's important just to lay the foundation uh, so that we have a proper understanding of what's going on. This is highly significant. This is amazing. This This should be, as we read this, we should read this in awe. Wow, that is amazing. I've never heard of such a thing. I've never seen such a thing. That is awesome, but it's true. It is historical, and it was for a specific time, primarily to validate the ministry of the apostles as they were the spokespersons of Jesus Christ wherever they went. And sometimes they went into foreign lands, and you got some stranger coming into town claiming to be from God. They heard. They heard that all the time. All kinds of false teachers and false healers and phonies and charlatans. And it needed to be validated as true. And one of the ways that God would do that was with validating signs, the ability to do inimitable miracles that could only be attested to Almighty God Himself. So that's what's going on here. So let's go ahead and look at it. Let's look at these two amazing miracles by the Apostle Peter. Now, Paul's getting his ministry going. He's now going to start reaching out to the Gentiles, but uh, now he's in seclusion for a little bit where God is going to work on him to give him respite, but also for the revelation and some training. And while he is doing that, now we go back to the ministry of the Apostle Peter. Where we left off with Peter was there was a massive persecution by Saul and the Jews in Jerusalem. They chased virtually almost all the Christians out of town save the apostles, stayed back in Jerusalem. They felt it necessary to be there to protect the church, to provide leadership. Maybe there are a few who couldn't leave town, so they felt 
compelled to minister to those Christians who were there. That's where we left Peter. Under duress, under persecution in Jerusalem. But now we see, uh, let's look at verses 32 to 35, point number one. And this first miracle that Peter does, miracles validate the preaching of the apostles. And in this case, it's Peter. Peter had an itinerant ministry. So there were times where he was able to finally, as things settled down and became quiet and peaceable. We saw that in the last section that we preached on, where since Saul got saved and wasn't breathing threats anymore and chasing Christians all over Palestine to throw them into jail and have them executed, he gets saved. And now there's a respite from this persecution. There's peace and blessing among the church. And so everybody can take a deep breath. And so there's a a season of blessing, of peace, of rest. And so it, it is that strategic point where Peter feels, okay, now I can leave Jerusalem. They're okay here, and I'm going to go up north. And he did that. He went to Samaria and was checking out uh, the new believers there. And, and he does the same thing here. He leaves Jerusalem. He goes 25, 35 miles going up north and then to the uh, west coast. There we're going to see is where he ends up in these two cities called Lydda and Joppa. That's where he's going towards the Mediterranean. So he is. he did have an itinerant ministry, meaning he was on the road at times, even though his headquarters were in Jerusalem. As far as we know, Peter is alone on this trip. It doesn't say he was with John or the other apostles. Uh, it could very well be that he had some servants with him. That's possible. We do know, it's kind of interesting, Peter probably took his wife with him on this trip. Very possible. His wife? Peter was married? Pope Peter was married? Absolutely. We know that from the Gospels, but we also know specifically from 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul mentioned that Peter took a wife with him when he went. Which makes sense, because if it's an extended time of a journey, appropriate to have his wife with him. Uh, so now we see in verse 32, now as Peter was traveling through all those regions, going up north of Jerusalem, he came. What, why was he traveling? Where was he going? Going in all these regions, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. Lydda is the name of a city. And if you go from Jerusalem, about 25 miles to the north and to the west, heading towards the Mediterranean Sea, there is a town there called Lydda, it still exists today, as a matter of fact. It's populated. Some of the things that we're going to see here, like Lydda and Joppa, uh, Caesarea, in the text, this tells us the Bible is historical. It's not fiction. These are real cities. They're real places. You can go visit them today. 2,000 years later, you can go visit Joppa. The only natural harbor on the Mediterranean on that coast. And Lydda, which is only 10 miles away. So, uh, he's on. This is a major road going from Jerusalem, going towards the Mediterranean, and he stops at a place or a city or a town called Lydda. Why is he stopping there? Because it says in verse 32 that there were saints who lived there. Saints. Saints, hagias. It means holy ones. Holy ones. Those of you with a, like a Catholic background or something similar, you were taught like I was that a saint is, first of all, it's a dead person. They've been dead a long time. They had to have done amazing deeds and miracles, and they were voted on to become a saint after they were dead by authorities in the Catholic Church. Not every Christian was a saint. And when there was a picture of them, there was usually like glow or a halo over their head. That was a saint. That's what I was taught. That's what I thought. Saints were unique. They were special people. They were always dead. And then I read the Bible, and it's like, no, saints are actually living Christians. Every Christian is a saint. That was one of Paul's favorite terms for Christian saint. So if you are a Christian today, you are a saint. Doesn't that make you feel good? You are a saint. Your your face shineth. Your head gloweth. Anyway, 
saint. So this is Paul's, this is one of Paul's favorite. It could be that Luke got used to using this because he was alongside Paul in ministry, but it could very well be that Luke got this term from the Old Testament because all throughout uh, the Psalms, the word for Christian or believer is saint. The psalmist used saints referring to the believers all the time. The saint Daniel, the prophet, used that word referring to believers. And it, uh, at, at its root, it means set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart, uniquely set apart. Uh, uniquely set apart because you belong to God. He owns you, Christian, and he wants to use you in a unique way. And also, positionally speaking, you are set apart because you have been forgiven of all your sin in Jesus Christ and you have been made holy and the Spirit of God lives in you. So that when God the Father looks down from heaven, he doesn't see the pathetic, despicable you that you are and I that I am. He sees us enveloped in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And as a result, God can call us holy ones. Isn't that awesome? It's our positional righteousness. Well, I don't feel holy. I don't act holy. Yeah, that's true. But positionally, legally, from God's point of view... In terms of your relationship with Christ, by faith, you are a holy one. And so there are Christian saints living in Lydda. How did they get up there 25 miles north of Jerusalem? Could have been, Well, we know that Philip was up there preaching in Samaria surrounding areas. Philip the evangelist. Uh, maybe that's how they got there. Could be that some of these saints actually came down at Pentecost because there were many people from around the world. There were God-fearers and, and Jewish people. Maybe they got the gospel and went back to Lydda. Uh, it could be that they got there from uh, persecution and they fled Jerusalem because it said they fled all over the place. So there is a bastion of Christians in Lydda, and apparently Peter heard about it in Lydda. There are saints there. They need to be. And why is Peter going there? He's the head apostle. He is laying the foundation. He gets direct revelation. And these believers in Lydda, for all we know, they don't have a leader. They don't have a pastor. They are new to the faith. They don't have organization. And that's what Peter can provide. No doubt. So Peter is going there to encourage the saints to give them biblical revelation, to train up leadership, to give some organization to the church because they need that. Sheep need a shepherd. Very important ministry of Peter here. So he goes up there where these saints are residing in Lydda, and there, uh, as he's with the saints, he comes across a man named Aeneas. That's verse 33, Aeneas. We don't know if he's a Christian already or not. Could be that he was uh, communing with the believers, and they introduced Peter to this man named Aeneas, who lived among the saints. Turns out that this man, Aeneas, had been paralyzed, bedridden. He couldn't walk. He was in that condition for at least eight years. Although the Greek text makes it possible that he became paralyzed at age eight. So we're not quite sure. But at a minimum, he has been paralyzed for eight years. He couldn't walk. Peter has been in this position before. Acts chapter 3. Him and John, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, go to the temple, the hour of prayer. They're about to go into the temple proper and they see a lame man a man couldn't walk on a bed caught begging for money over 40 years old lame from birth give me money give me money give me money peter said no we don't have any money silver gold we don't have but in the name of jesus christ of nazareth rise and walk and instantaneously that man was healed and he was excited, and he was jumping around making a scene, following Peter and John wherever they went. So Peter has seen this situation before. So he sees Aeneas. Keep in mind, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 10 to the apostles? I want you to go and preach the gospel. Then heal. Raise the dead, do miracles. 
So even though it doesn't say that Peter preached the gospel, we know Peter preached the gospel. That was his job. That's what he was doing. I am confident that Aeneas, if he wasn't a Christian, he heard the gospel, clearly who Jesus is. And that's why uh, Peter looks at this lame man and he says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you right now. An heuristic present tense. Jesus is healing you right now. You are healed. Instantaneous. And it wasn't Peter who healed him. It was Jesus. said the same thing in chapter 3. Jesus Christ heals you. Not me. Not Peter. That's why Peter couldn't do a miracle anytime he wanted to. He didn't have the power. He had to be in tune with God's will. And this is one of those rare occasions. By the way, uh, oh, we'll get to that in a second. So Peter says to Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. And immediately Aeneas got up. Lydda was probably compared to our cities or town, a small town for their, where they lived, maybe a larger town, a crowd of people. And there were uh, all kinds of little towns and cities and villages all along the way, from Lydda all the way to the Mediterranean, all the way to Joppa. Just a, a chain of people living. And in these little towns, uh, people have their reputations. Aeneas probably had a reputation of being the lame man in town. There was probably the, the town drunk and the town beggar and the town harlot, and he was the town lame man. People knew who he was, and the word got out. Peter does this amazing miracle, instantaneous, heals him in the name of Jesus Christ. He says, get up and walk. He does that. He obeys. Immediately he got up. It was not a progressive miracle. It had nothing to do with his faith either. Based on your faith, I do a miracle. No. In the name of Jesus Christ, get up. Jesus healed him instantaneously. You are healed, now get up. And he did. Immediately he gets up. And then word spread. That's the implication uh, between verse 34 and 35. Uh, that the town uh, crippled man is no, the, the town paralyzed man is no longer paralyzed. He can walk after eight years. Unbelievable, unprecedented, uh, beyond what our medical abilities are today. How in the world did that happen? That was, uh, it had to be a miracle of God. Oh, I heard Peter the apostle was in town. Oh, he healed him in the name of Jesus Christ, that great name. We've heard of this before. So word gets out, spreads across town. It spreads all over the area. It spreads to uh, the north and to the west, to the plain of Sharon, where there are many towns and villages along the Mediterranean, and to a very uh, popular town or city called Joppa, just 10 miles away. Word gets there very quickly. It's about a three-hour walk to the next city called Joppa. And word gets out that this man was healed instantaneously, amazingly. And Peter, the apostle, is in town. So the Christians who live in Joppa, there's a pocket of Christians there too in Joppa. Probably got there the same way, that there were believers in Lydda. Oh, did you hear Peter's in town? Peter, the apostle, who walked and talked with Jesus. He, he's in town. He's in the area. He's in the vicinity. Somebody go get him. He just did a miracle. And they heard about it. Because it says, verse 35, it says, all who lived in Lydda. All who lived in Lydda. So everybody heard about it. And Sharon. Sharon is the plain of Sharon. So it's not a city. The plain of Sharon is a huge, massive area that goes from uh, Joppa, which is a town or city, and then Lydda on the, uh, in the bottom. And then it goes about... 50 miles up north all the way to Mount Carmel, and in there is Caesarea and other cities. So there's all these cities in the plain of Sharon. It's a very fertile, beautiful area in Israel. It was 2,000 years ago. It is today. As a matter of fact, it's one of the most densely populated areas of the promised land today by Jews, the plain of Sharon. And 
in the plain of Sharon are these cities of Lydda, Caesarea, and Joppa. And it says all who lived in uh, Lydda and the entire surrounding areas, they saw the crippled man who was crippled no more. And as and they heard, how did this happen? Well, Peter healed him in the name of Jesus. Well, who's Jesus? Well, here's Jesus, Savior of the world, God-man, came here, lived a sinless life, a perfect life, went to the cross, got crucified, died on behalf of sinners as their substitute, rose again from the dead in fulfillment of scriptures and reigns as Lord of heaven and earth today and is seeking and calling sinners to Himself that they might be saved. This was the message they were giving in conjunction with explaining the miracle. Because that's what miracles did. They validated the preached message. So these people heard the gospel. They heard about Jesus Christ. And it says they turned to the Lord. There was a mass conversion. Many who heard turned to Jesus Christ, embraced Him as Lord. That's why I put miracles validate the preaching of the apostles. So the main thing here isn't the miracle. That's a signpost to the greater reality and miracle. And that is the salvation of lost souls. Many turned to the Lord. Well, Pastor Cliff, earlier you said you haven't done any miracles or seen any miracles. I haven't in my own life. I've never done a miracle like this. Early on as a, a Christian, I, I tried when I first got saved. Wasn't very frustrating. How come it's not world? I don't have enough faith. Then I came to realize the proper context of what Scripture says. That's not my gift. It's not my ability. I'm not an apostle. Uh, but I, even though I haven't performed a miracle, I, st- I have miracles. I have miracles in my life. They are in my Bible. They are real. They are a part of my faith. I read them. They edify me. They encourage me. They strengthen my faith. And I can, so we do have miracles today. Astounding ones, and they are right here in the Bible. The Word of God, it is living. You read this story to somebody, and they can be blessed by this amazing supernatural miracle. So we have these kinds of miracles, and we also, I I keep saying it, the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of a sinner. When an ain't becomes a saint. The greatest miracle of all. Coming, Being adopted into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ, secure in Him forever. There is no greater miracle. So, Miracles validated the preaching of Peter. And so word got out. Let's go to verse 36 and 43 to the second miracle here. Uh, And a complimentary point that miracles pointed ultimately to Christ. Not to Peter. Peter didn't do the miracle. He didn't do it in his name. He didn't do it in his power. He didn't do it at his discretion. God is totally sovereign of when and how these miracles happen. So here's another miracle. So... Verse 36 to 43, starting at verse 30. Now in Joppa, Joppa was 10 miles away from the city of Lydda. Peter is in Lydda encouraging the saints. Word gets out. He did an amazing miracle. Word gets to Joppa. Joppa is on the coast. It's a natural seaport. It is historical. It's in the Old Testament. It's where Solomon used that seaport to have wood come down cedar from Lebanon. They floated it down along the sea so he could build the temple. It's mentioned in Second Chronicles, Joppa. Joppa was where disobedient Jonah was mentioned in Jonah chapter 1 I think verse 3 where he didn't want to be faithful and obedient and preach the gospel so Joppa is a real place a historical place you can go there today and see Joppa the Bible is historical Luke didn't make a mistake now in Joppa 10 miles away from Lydda there was a disciple named Tabitha beautiful name Tabitha is the Aramaic name Aramaic slash Hebrew Name, it means gazelle, a doe, a beautiful, 
gracious doe, gazelle, Tabitha. Translated into Greek is Dorcas. I won't comment on that name. Although, well, anyway, I was going to say, but I'll skip it. Um, Dorcas? No, if, if we have somebody at church today named Dorcas, I'm not making fun of your name. That's a, it's a biblical name. Tabitha was her name. This woman, this is amazing. Uh, Luke is select. I mean, can you think? imagine all the information Luke possibly could have compiled to make his 28 chapters? And he is very selective about what he's going to decide to put in his account of the book of Acts because he has limited space. So anything he chooses is highly significant. And when you mention someone's name, they are highly significant. And he mentions this woman. There are people in the Bible who are not named. A certain man, a certain woman, whatever. This one is named, this is a woman. She is highly significant. She was highly influential in her community. So, And she is a believer. She is a Christian. She lives in the city of Joppa. We don't know when she got saved or became a believer, but she is called a disciple in verse 36. She knows Jesus Christ. She has heard the gospel. She has been saved. She is a full, fully realized Christian and an influential one. Now, so in this city of Joppa, which was right on the coast of the Mediterranean in the seaport, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She's a single woman. She could be a widow for all we know. Apparently she didn't have any children because they're not there when she dies. Maybe she was single her whole life. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. This woman, this is amazing, was abounding with deeds. Okay, let's pick up. Uh, Joppa, uh, abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. So the words that jump out for me are she's abounding in, in good deeds. This is how she lived. And it's continual. She's continually doing good deeds. In other words, uh, she didn't have that oft-heard uh, problem that some Christians have. that Oh, I'm burned out. I'm burned out from serving. I'm burned out from ministry. I'm burned out from church. I'm burned out from helping people. I'm burned out from serving. I'm burned out from serving the Lord. I'm burned out from being obedient. Apparently, she didn't have that problem. That's why she was exemplary. That's why people around her were in awe of her and looked to her as an example, wanted to follow her, model her. They were blessed by her ministry. It was abounding. It was overflowing. It was supernatural. No doubt she probably had the spiritual gift of service mentioned in Romans 12, and also the gift of mercy. Literally, the spiritual gift of mercy meaning your gut hurts for people. Who does it hurt for? The needy, those in distress, the poor, the widows, the hurting. You have a unique ability to identify someone who is hurt. You're not oblivious to what's going on around you. It's an amazing gift. Many Christians are afraid of those kind of needy people because they don't know what to do. It's awkward. I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to say to them. Not Tabitha and not those with this gift. She is abounding with deeds of kindness and charity. Kindness refers to her attitude. And charity refers to her actions primarily. Kindness. She's just kind. 
not all people are kind. Not all Christians are kind. Some Christians have kind of a rough edge. But not Tabitha. This is her temperament. This is her demeanor. This is her attitude. This is how she carries herself. This is how she speaks. This is how she, her methodology. It, it is just kind. It is kind. It is gentle. This is what pleases God, according to 1 Peter 3. She was exemplary in this of kindness. This is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not natural. It's supernatural. And it's possible. And she was a model in kindness as a woman of God. That was her temperament. But also her works, charity, abounding in charity. These were goods of, uh, these are deeds of goodness, of kindness, as I already mentioned, helping those who just have a desperate, unique need, uh, the poor, the needy, the widows, the lowly, the depressed, the distressed, the mourning. And she had an aptitude for identifying and helping these people continually. Charity also has to do with a giving person and a giving heart. She was giving and kept giving and kept giving and kept giving. She may have been a woman of means as well because of we're going to see specifically what she gave to these folks. Continually giving of herself. Just an amazing woman of God. Highly influential in her new young church community. In verse 37, it's sad. It happened that at that time she fell sick, so kind of a sudden death. She fell sick and died. She was like the head of the women's ministry, this new church. People were leaning upon her, looked to her, depending upon her. And then, boom, she's taken from them like that. So the women in particular in that church and the widows specifically, she had a unique ministry to widows, they were devastated. They weren't celebrating, yay, she's in heaven now. That was not their initial reaction. I don't think that's ever the initial reaction in the Bible when a saint dies. Yeah, she's in heaven. But she had these deep, sweet spiritual relationships with so many of these saints, particularly the women, that they felt her loss at the deepest level. It's okay to mourn when someone dies, even if they're a Christian. As a matter of fact, that's what we should do according to the Bible. Death death is evil. Death is bad. Paul says death is an enemy. Death is not good. Hebrews says that death is Satan's number one tool. Death is nothing to celebrate. And when you lose a, a loved one through death, it's time for mourning. This is normal. Jesus mourned at the death of of his friend. The apostles mourned at the death of Jesus Christ, even though he told them, I'm going back to heaven in glory with the Father in three days. That's where I am. They mourned nevertheless when he died. So she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid her in an upper room. By the way, this was not normal with the Jews or even in that day. When somebody died, you bury them the same day. They didn't want the stench, and it was just to be immediate. And some, they would be uh, wrapped, they, wipe them with oil, and then wrap them up in the burial cloths. And, and if they could, bury them the same day. They didn't do that. They washed her, and they put her in an upper room. That was kind of out of the ordinary. Strange. Unexpected. I would say people of faith, because they knew that Peter was in the vicinity. 
And that's exactly what happens. Uh, verse 38, since Lydda was near Joppa, only 9 to 10 miles away, the disciples there in Lydda, I mean in uh, Joppa, having heard that Peter was there, they sent two messengers to Peter, imploring him, do not delay and come to us. Come to us, come to us. That's the message. Peter responds. He's led by the Spirit. Verse 39, so Peter arose and he went with them that very day probably. He goes the three-hour walk or whatever it is. He arrives in the city of Joppa. He meets the disciples that are there. They welcome him. They embrace him. They bring him up into the upper room on top of the building, which was normal to have upper rooms. And get this, all the widows stood beside. There's a room full of widows. These were the women that Tabitha ministered to. These were the women that were blessed by Tabitha. All the widows stood beside him. They were weeping. They were not celebrating. These were sincere weeps. And not only that, they were telling Peter, they were giving eulogies about how wonderful Tabitha was. Oh, Peter, she was such a wonderful woman of God. She was exemplary. She was so kind. She was so giving. She never stopped giving. She never stopped serving. She was exemplary. And she blessed every single one of us. And literally, it says they were weeping and they were showing, middle voice in the Greek text, showing of themselves all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. They were wearing the clothes that the Tabitha made and gave to them on display. Look what she did. Here's the evidence of her ministry, Peter. This was an amazing woman. Notice up to this point, there's no request that we see in Scripture where they said, Peter, heal her. Bring her back to life. Bring her back from the dead. We don't see that in the text. By the way, I already said this earlier. Peter couldn't necessarily raise anybody from the dead whenever he wanted to. If he had that ability to bring people back from the dead, he probably would have done it to a lot of people. He probably would have done it to Stephen, who was influential in his He didn't. This was a rare ability to raise someone from the dead. As a matter of fact, there are a few resurrections that are even mentioned in the Bible. Aside from Jesus' resurrection, there are very few. This was not normative. So Peter is moved by this display, this amazing woman. Could be that Peter didn't know what to do, so what does he do? He sends them all out of the room. Jesus did that in his ministry as well one time. Sends everybody out. He's not being rude. They're, they're mourning, they're loud, they're distracting. He can't, he doesn't know what to do, maybe. He sends them all out of the room. He wants to be alone with his God. Peter sent them all out of the room and he knelt down and prayed. What do you do when you don't know what to do? You kneel, you pray. Pray to God. God, help me, give me wisdom. Father, what do you want me to do? Lord Jesus, what, what do I do? Well, God answered his prayer very quickly. He prayed. God answered his prayer. He understands clearly the answer to prayer. He turns to the body. The body is still dead. And then he says to the dead body, Tabitha, arise. Just two words in Aramaic. Tabitha, arise. Very similar to what Jesus said to the young woman who got healed. Tabitha, arise. And instantaneously, she opened her eyes. Boom, right there on the spot. A miracle. Peter didn't heal her. Jesus did. She opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Verse 41, then he gave 
her his hand. Only after she moved and sat up, then he extends his hand, raises her up, calling the saints and the widows. He presented her alive. What amazing. Now they can celebrate. This dear woman brought back from the dead, back into ministry to bless all these people. Word spread once again, just like the previous miracle. Peter has raised the dead. Peter has raised the dead. Have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you ever seen of such a thing? Few people had ever seen or heard such a thing. Word got out. And again, it's not just the miracle. It's Jesus uh, Christ. It's the gospel about Jesus. That's how he did it. How did Peter bring her back from the dead? He did it in the name of Jesus. Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Messiah. The God-man. The one who came to save sinners. That was the message that went out. Many heard it all throughout Joppa. And it says in verse 42, it became known all over Joppa. And many believed in Jesus. Not in Peter. Not in miracles. They believed in the Lord. The gospel is paramount. Verse 43, and Peter stayed many days in Joppa as a result, encouraging the saints, providing leadership, organization, maybe divine revelation, explaining more about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And here is a key and transitional verse at the end of verse 43. Peter stayed in Joppa by the Mediterranean Sea with a tanner named Simon. The reason that's significant is a tanner was somebody who worked with dead animal skins. And according to the scrupulous Jews, especially the Pharisees, Sadducees, they thought that was unclean and dirty. You do not associate with that kind of a person. You don't go in their house. You don't use any of their utensils. You don't even uh, hang around them. You don't talk to them. You don't affiliate with them whatsoever. They are unclean. They are dirty. And here's Peter being prepared by the Lord to be fully accepting of Gentiles into the church. And you know what? Peter obeys. Peter submits. Peter complies. He puts his prejudice aside. He sees the bigger picture. He sees Simon the Tanner, who works with dirty, dead animal skins, as a person made in the image of God that Jesus wants to embrace into his church, preparing his heart for even a greater ministry to Gentiles that we're going to see in the next chapter. Well, with that, we have the privilege now to go into share communion together. So if you are a Christian, you know Jesus Christ personally, you've embraced his gospel, then the Lord Jesus says that communion is for you. It's something we do as a company of saints. It's a time to celebrate. Thank God, because that's one of the words used for communion is Eucharist, which means Thanksgiving. First and foremost, during communion, we thank God for salvation in Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sin being born again, adopted into his family, secure in him forever. So communion is a time of celebration so far. Uh, while the uh, ushers are distributing the elements, I would ask you to hold on to those. And then I'm going to give you just a, a moment to, to meditate in your own heart after I read the key scripture verse to thank the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sin. Uh, but I want to read two verses in particular. The first one is in Colossians 3. And then the other one will be from Matthew chapter 6, if you wanted to have your finger in there. So in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul, he's talking to Christians or believers. I'll start at verse... Verse 12, 
Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul says, So as those who have been chosen of God, so he's talking to believers, holy and beloved, holy means set apart, forgiven of all of our sins, put on a heart of compassion. So now he's commanding us to do something. We need to put on a heart of compassion for people, put on a heart of kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That, that speaks of the demeanor that Tabitha had. Verse 13, here's the key. Bearing with one another. Put up with your fellow Christian. That's what it means. Tolerate your fellow irritating believer. Either the one at church you can't stand or the one you live with at your house. Really, that's what bearing with one another means. We have to live with each other. We have to tolerate each other. Then he's going to get more specific. Bearing with one another. Not just bearing. But it needs to go deeper than that. Forgiving each other. Communion is all about forgiveness. Communion is celebrating forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what communion is. Forgiveness is at the heart of communion. You cannot celebrate communion in an obedient, pleasing way to the Lord if you don't have a heart of forgiveness as a Christian. can't do it. As a Christian, you need to be forgiving each other. Present tense, you need to keep on forgiving each other. And this is talking about your fellow believers. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, whoever has a gripe against a fellow believer, an irritation or a sin or a stumbling block, just as the Lord Jesus forgave you, so also should you forgive them. This is a command. This is not an option. Jesus goes a little bit deeper in a sobering way. And for some, in a frightening way. Listen to that famous Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, here's how you should pray, our Father who art in heaven. And then he gets down to verse 12, the well-known part, where this is how we're supposed to pray. God, forgive us of our debts. Forgive us of our sins. Thank you for forgiveness of sin we have in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's the only way to have forgiveness of sin. Thank you, Lord, for providing that forgiveness. This is what we remember at communion. That's why we do communion, to remember the forgiveness that Jesus provides. So do that in your own heart in just a second. Forgive us of our debts as we also forgive those who sin against us. It's huge. And then listen to what Jesus says. If you, for if you forgive others for their transgressions or sins, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. That, that is, that's frightening. So just a little exercise before we take communion. Think of someone uh, that you're mad at. Think of someone that you have a grievance against. Think of someone that you aren't forgiving right now. Think of someone, okay? Shame on you, first of all, and me, if we could actually think of someone. If we did think of someone, then you need to entrust that to the Lord. God, I have the supernatural ability as a Christian and the spirit living in me to forgive that person. And the sin that that person has committed against me is less of offense than the sins I have committed against you, my Lord. So if you're a Christian, you actually have the capacity and supernatural ability to forgive a fellow believer regardless of the sin. And Jesus said, if you don't forgive, the Father will not forgive you. So what this is saying is a basic mark of true Christianity is utter forgiveness. And if someone says they're a Christian and they say things like, I, ne- I will never forgive you, 
Out of the mouth, the heart speaks, Jesus said. That's frightening. But it's serious. And that's why Paul said in Corinthians, when we take communion, we're actually making a judgment upon our own head. And it is severe. And those who profess to be Christians who take communion in an unworthy manner, they get sick and some of them are judged by God and die. That's how serious it is. And one of the most important things to consider at the time of communion is the forgiveness the Lord Jesus Christ imparts to us that we can extend to others. So right now I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to pray in your own heart to the Lord, thanking him for forgiveness you have in our blessed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and also asking him through the Holy Spirit to replenish, to renew the power of the Holy Spirit living in us that we might walk in the fruits of the Spirit, one of those being the ability to forgive other people. Let's go ahead and meditate in our own heart. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.